And as we enter back into sort of narrative stories, I, I, I always want us um, and want to draw out of us the, the entering into these stories. And, and so we'll, we'll get into the text, but I want to make sure that we are contextually diving in. I can almost imagine if I were to direct a movie about the scene today, a child sitting on his father's shoulders walking along this dirt road, clearly a first century Jew by dress. And the child who does what children do asks why. Why are we doing this? Why is this happening? Why, Dad, why? And as a good Jewish father who often catechized their own children, says, all right, son, we celebrate this every year. We come to the city every year. We celebrate when God set us free. The son's like, but it doesn't feel like we're free, Dad. And yes, son, I know. It's been a thousand years. It's been a thousand years since our last king, our real king. It's been a long time. And we had Assyria, we had Babylon, we had the Persians, we had the Greeks, and right now we got the Romans. It's felt like we've been under the boot of someone else for a long time. But God keeps saying, there's this Messiah, there's this king that's supposed to be coming. And one day, this freedom will happen, liberation, even revolution. There's a king coming. And let's not forget, maybe even the camera sort of zooms out and you realize this father and son are in a large crowd, making their way, thousands if not a couple million making their way to Jerusalem for this week, this particular week, a week that very much centers around a celebration of deliverance and revolution, a week that is a celebration of when Israel had been under a different oppression, under a different group that had held them into the chains of slavery, and yet God had delivered them out from under the boot of Egypt. That's what they're remembering. And as they're walking along, they're all singing songs, these traveling songs, these uh, songs that they have sung year after year after year of how great God is, of God's deliverance. And they celebrate Not just a single day of independence like we do on July 4th, but a week celebration of independence. Now, at the same time, I can imagine a scene changing. And suddenly we're taken to a very different place, a larger palace, a more decorated um, Roman kind of palace. And a man talking to his wife, wondering why he has to leave again. He tells her, love, these people are a heck. These are stiff-necked, stubborn people. And of all the lands in Rome, they're the only ones that don't have to bow their knee to Caesar, and they are just frustrating. And this is their Independence Week. This is a week where they are all charged up around independence, around the overthrow of power. So, honey, I've got to go. We need a show of force. We need to keep the peace we got to make sure they know who the real power is, who's really in charge. That's the way of peace, at least for Rome. 
And so from a hillside in the west, there's a distant rumble. It's percussive. Falls a steady beat. And you can see the soldiers making their way. Hundreds, if not a couple thousand of them. Red tunics, well-shined armor. Helmets fast and tight, some with plumage. And out front is a the same man who was speaking to his wife on a white war horse heading into town. It's the appearance of a group that looks like they're going to war to represent history of power and might and violence, repressing or representing the very kingdom that Caesar has decreed. And so they make their way from Caesar town. Um, there's even a map of where this would have taken place. Caesarea, which is there on the left side on the coast, was a port city built by the Romans, actually with Herod the Great uh, finances. And people still don't know how Herod the Great pulled it off and how he did underwater concrete uh, to this day, but oh, it left quickly. So you had Caesarea, this Caesar town, this port, this Roman port. And so um, this would be the home of Pontius Pilate in this area. And he would make his way down through Joppa and towards Jerusalem entering Jerusalem, the city, from the west on this very weekend, this first weekend leading up to Passover, he would be heading into the city. And at the very same time, we get the scene that we see today. Same weekend, likely the same day, maybe even the same hour. And this is the backdrop that this happens in where we pick up the story. And now we have to remember what actually got Jesus killed. I mean, certainly Jesus is in control of it all. He talks to his disciples and tells them, look, I, I lay down my own life. No one takes it from me. So certainly Jesus is in control. But if we were to go, okay, what is the charge that actually got Jesus killed? It's the very sign hanging on the cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. Because throughout his life, Jesus has been, at least the last three years of his ministry, himself as a king and over a kingdom. That is the idea, right from the start of ministry, right? Mark, the gospel writer Mark, opens his gospel by saying, this is the good news, this euangelion, this, this declaration of a king's victory. Good news, that, that was a word that sort of co-opted there. Of a Messiah, king. This is the Jewish idea of this sent anointed king. And Jesus' opening proclamation in Mark's book is the kingdom of God has come near. Or Matthew, who starts with a genealogy, very much calls Jesus right from the get-go, the Messiah, the son of David, and makes sure that to, tra to trace the genealogy of this Jesus to the son of David, this kingship that had been promised. King and Messiah fever was strong in that first century. The prophets had spoken a whole lot about it. This one who was coming, this one who would set the captives free, this one who would establish his throne forever, this one who would reign with equity, who would rule over God's people. The people were, were waiting so, by bated breath, waiting for this thing, looking at the signs, hoping that this next one would be the Messiah. And there was buzz about this rabbi from the north. He'd been stirring the pot a little bit. <laughs> He'd been teaching on the Torah in ways that sounded different yet had tremendous authority. He's confronted leadership, both the corrupt leadership in Jerusalem as well as the legalistic leadership in the north that were lacking mercy and faithfulness. He spoke a lot about his kingdom and what the kingdom is like. People have been calling him Messiah, and the people are a buzz. 
as he's heading towards Jerusalem, wondering what kind of king he's going to be. And that's where we pick up our story. It's quite a bit of backstory to head into Palm Sunday, but Matthew 21 is where we'll be. We're going to jump to Luke as well um, in how he tells the story because uh, it's the beauty of Jesus' last week is that all four gospel writers really are a lot more in sync in this section of their gospels than any other point. And so um, we will look at different facets, but we'll start with Matthew. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, uh, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in, in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone shall say to you, uh, say something to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once, which is beautiful. I wish that worked for me to just simply go, hey, uh, go ask for those things. And if they say, well, say Chris needs them. But uh, it works for Jesus, certainly. Um, and this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, the king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They, bought, they brought the donkey uh, and the colt and put, them on, uh, put on them their cloaks, and, sat, and he sat on them. Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that, shouted him, uh, that, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, which really means save us, deliver us in the highest. And when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And once again, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this story. And as I said, there's a lot of Messiah fever in the first century at this moment. And Matthew even helps direct some of our attention, even in how he will fully and directly quote uh, some of the prophets in, these, in this story. And he includes various details in his story, and, and we'll look at those in a second. But one of the last prophets in Israel's history, kind of late into their exile time, had spoken about this sort of picture. Hey, you know when you, this, this, this Messiah is going to come, he's going to do, here's, here's a, a trigger for you to know and identify him. And we see it in Matthew, that, that text, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, which would have been the Messiah, the, the king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And suddenly this processional gets real for a lot of these people. It's as if things have suddenly taken off. And this itinerant rabbi, for some of them, who shows up on this donkey, and they're like, we know this. Let's get this revolution started. Messiah's coming to town. God's about to deliver us. This, this is the sign. This is what we have been waiting for. And so they all grab branches. Uh, the gospel writer John even points out that there are palm branches. And they start shouting and singing Psalm 118, which simply says, Save us, Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And they would shout this text. Now, what's happening here? Why the song? Why the branches? Why all of this stuff in the storyline? Now, I think it's a, a, a good way sometimes to read scripture that, um, particularly someone like Matthew, but in other uh, gospel writers too, that there's details included. 
Those details matter. It's more than just the gospel writer is giving us just random more information. Uh, and often, particularly in Matthew, there's an Old Testament reference, there's an Old Testament connection that he's hoping that you see. And to a first century Jews, who's Matthew's audience, they would have the whole Torah memorized. In addition, most of the prophets would be memorized by most of them as well. So they would hear these and they would go, I know that. And, and so this is the particularities of this story. Now, did you know there's a Jewish festival on the calendar that involves palm branches and the shouting of Psalm 118? Now, the difficulty is that it's not Passover. <laughs> That's the weird part. We're sort of going, okay, well, why are they doing this? Because the festival that involves palm branches and, and the singing of Psalm 118 is actually the festival called Sukkot, or booths, or tabernacles. It's a festival that celebrates the time when Israel is in the desert uh, and God sort of leads them and provides for them while they're, while they're in the desert. And it's a fall festival. It's not even close on the calendar to lead some scholars to think that the, the, Passover or the Palm Sunday story is actually not at the same week. But uh, I, I, I think that's bunk. But anyways, I'll, I'll get to why. So why would Jesus, riding on this donkey, kind of uh, fulfilling this Jer the Zechariah prophecy, why would it trigger people to suddenly go, hey, we need to go celebrate a different holiday? We need palm branches. Uh, we're going we're gonna to sing Psalm 118. But let's remember how Zechariah ends, because most of us have Zechariah well memorized, I'm sure. Um, but the prophecy of Zechariah keeps going. As it speaks about this king who's going to come, he's going to deliver his people, he's going to have this victory. And, and towards the end of his book, this is sort of the celebration of the victories, uh, Zechariah 14, 3 through 5. Then the Lord will go out and fight against these nations. So this is the final battle. So the king will come, this will be the battle. Fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of, the, uh, a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, where are we in Matthew. The Mount of Olives, right? Matthew's saying Jesus showed up, he went through Bethphage, and here he is on the Mount of Olives. So this is what's happening. He's riding on this donkey, just like Zachariah spoke about. He's on the Mount of Olives. This is all coming together. Uh, so he's on the Mount of Olives uh, that lies between, before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, which is a beautiful picture of what might actually be happening in these two stories. So the very wide valley, so that one half of uh, the mountain should move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of the mountain, my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God will come. And all the holy ones with him. And so uh, the speaking of the Lord going out to fight for us. The, the Lord is going to go out and have this victory. Then everyone who survives, uh, verse 16, and everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. So after this victory, at, at the moment of, of deliverance, they shall go out. Celebrate the King of kings, the Lord of the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up from Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there shall be no rain for them, which is also uh, uh, water and rain are tied into this festival. And the family of Egypt shall not go up and present themselves. Then on them there shall be no rain. Then there shall be a plague with which the Lord affects the nations that do not go up and keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be a punishment to Egypt and a punishment to nations that do not go up and keep the Feast of Booths. And so Zechariah gives this whole text to say, look, the Messiah is coming. He's going to come riding on this donkey. He's coming to town because God's going to have this victory. And to participate, as part of participating in this victory, we will celebrate the Feast of Booths. And I think people are watching this Messiah come riding in on this donkey 
donkey, understanding Zechariah, and suddenly they get out their palm branches and they start shouting Psalm 118 because they know their Bibles. They are excited. Not only that, but the palm fronds themselves become associated with a whole group called the Zealots, whose very, like, formation is around the very idea of, of revolution. This is what they're after. This Messiah is coming. He's going to drive out the Romans. This is a celebration. And they're getting ready for their king, who is riding in from the east side of town the same day that the Romans are showing up with their might and power and force on the west side of town. It's like this battle of two kingdoms is playing out in the story. And it's fascinating. Now, but I also want to jump us over to Luke. Because Luke kind of gives us a, a wrap-up of the story. Luke has very similar text to Matthew. Um, it's a very similar story. But then, as he wraps up a story, this is Luke 19, verse 41. When he drew near, when Jesus drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Now, there's some irony a little bit to me that on this day where everybody's rubbing palm fronds, everybody's yelling to Jesus to save us, and then Jesus weeps that we give children a bunch of palm fronds, wave them around, and it's the very thing that made Jesus cry. But that's beside the point. And it's perhaps Jesus weeping because the prophet of Zechariah says more to say than just victory. Zechariah 9, let's start where we were at. Zechariah 9, it said, as we said before, the rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, the king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble, which should be a start trigger on that, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another name for Israel, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And so when Zacharias speaks about this Messiah who's coming, who is humble, he moves right into the idea of peace, of taking away of the war horses, of taking away of the chariots, of taking away of the violence. And yet these people are Messiah heavy, waving their palm branches, expecting Jesus to be a certain kind of Messiah. And before you think I'm totally out of context, Jesus follows up by saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden for your eyes. It's a story of two kingdoms. The kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. And the people want a certain version of Jesus. But it may not be the kingdom that they expect. And it may be more like the one coming from the West. Pilate on his war horse and Jesus on his donkey. <laughs> Pilate with his band of soldiers ready to show force and Jesus with his peasants. Pilate instilling fear and Jesus pronouncing favor. Pilate with his empire of violence, chaos, and Jesus with shalom and peace. And so many are here starting this week wanting Jesus to be the Messiah, this promised king who will bring out uh, and, and, and destroy the enemies of Israel, but they want Jesus on their terms. But Jesus' kingdom is not going to be like the kingdoms of this world. His coronation will not come after a slew of military victories like it would for Caesar. It will come through a criminal's shameful death. 
I can't wait to get there to see all the beautiful parallels between Jesus's, uh, the, the last, uh, Jesus's crucifixion story and how Caesar's would be coronated. His power will be shown not by exerting the foot on the neck of others, but by taking feet and washing them this week. It will not be a liberation that so many want, the kind of liberation from their circumstances, from injustices that have happened to them, but Jesus will offer liberation from sins that plague us ourselves by the only bloodshed that matters this week, his own. That is the victory of the kingdom. And that is the Messiah we need. Not simply a king to be the political king of Israel, but the true king of kings and lord of lords. And as he sets up his throne, he will usher in this new kingdom. One whose very entry point is simply faith in the work of the king. A kingdom that will never end, unlike all the ones of this world, of Caesars that have come and gone, of countries that have come and gone, of empires that have come and gone. This kingdom will be forever, and it will establish a real peace, a shalom between us and the God of the universe, and by the work of the Spirit, us and the rest of the world, should we live it out. But I want to ask the hard question, the sort of introspective question, which is, which kingdom do we actually want? And I think myself, similar to too many on the road that day in Jerusalem, say we want the kingdom of God, but I'm not sure we want it on God's terms or are willing to pay the price for it. That I want my version of power and might, not the version that's perfected in my weakness, as Paul would say. I often want a kingdom of retribution and payback, not of one of mercy and forgiveness. I often want a kingdom of celebrity or likes or influence, not one where I must decrease, where I must be the last. I often want a kingdom of consuming, of getting and buying more of what I want and when I want it, not one of radical generosity. I often want a kingdom of self-gratification, not of denying myself. I often want a kingdom of comfort and security, not one that may call me to step out and suffer for righteousness' sake. And I often want a kingdom of even superficial relationships, not one that's called me into dependency on my brothers and sisters connected through the same faith in the work of Jesus. And on this Palm Sunday, I think far too often we might find ourselves standing on the western side of Jerusalem as these two kingdoms unite or match each other, not on the east. We want the kingdom our way. Maybe the story of Rome and might and power and position and coercion and not the story of the kingdom of Jesus. But here's the deal. There's always hope. And it's simple. Repent. (laughs) Repent. The kingdom of God is here. Turn. Leave behind the small kingdoms that we are building in the world. How much good have they really done anyway for you? (laughs) But return to the king and this everlasting kingdom. And in it, find the shalom, find the peace that your heart has always longed for. It's been given as a free gift by faith. 
And yes, he may at that point call you a citizen into his kingdom and call you into a new way of living, absolutely. But the entry point is to repent and believe. And then when we're wandering, the return is to repent and believe. And he'll keep you there for eternity. That's the good news. It's the beauty of the kingdom. <laughs> and the invitation is always there. So the question is, which kingdom do you really want? Do you go into your workplace? Do you go home today? Do you, do you live this out? My prayer is that you live for a kingdom that is so much greater than the little ones that are all around us. And so during this Lenten season, one of the things we wanted to do is also sort of bring back some of the, the traditional elements of communion. It seemed fitting for this season. Now, it's still COVID season, and so we want to be mindful of how we do this or even the openness of this. But at the same time, we wanted to bring back uh, what we had traditionally done before, which is called intinction, uh, which is taking a piece of the bread, uh, dipping it in the cup, and partaking. Um, it is a shared cup. So my strong encouragement towards you, if sh should you want to go back to this method, is to be very, very careful. If you have a piece of bread in it, try your hardest not to put your fingers in the cup, please. Um, but we also understand, like, everyone has different convictions right now about whether that's a good idea, a bad idea. They, and we, we, we want to acknowledge that. We want to be very open to that. We do not want to be divided around that. And so we will also have the prepackaged uh, deals still available. Uh, and... and should you so choose to celebrate communion that way, we want to honor that too. We want to be open to that too. Uh, those that have prepared this, we've washed our hands. We've made sure that uh, we've gone through protocols uh, to not cross-contaminate any bread. Uh, but we want to invite you to come back uh, to the table uh, in that way too, uh, not just in the cups uh, as well, the little cups. But we also want to bring back um, what we would call almost um, traditional liturgy, traditional wording. And so um, in this time, we'll have a few call and responses as well or um, things we read in unison. But we want to give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that before he suffered, he gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. And at his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we drink the, or eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, we proclaim together by faith that is signed and sealed by this sacrament, we say this, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Lord our God, send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. And together we will pray in the name of Jesus the prayer that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And so um, the bread and the cup will be on this side. The little prepackaged cups will be on this side. And it's by faith we come to the table and we celebrate the good news of Jesus. And if today is not a day that um, you entered into this room by faith, that invitation to repent and believe is on the table for you today. May today be a moment of decision to come forward for the first time in a way that believes. And if you're still wrestling, we invite you to stay where you're at. We are a church that is extremely open to the 10,000 questions that faith involves. And, and so we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to engage in that conversation so you're not doing it in isolation. Um, but if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table today. And so I'm going to invite up the Sues uh, to help hand out uh, communion. Uh, they'll have the bread and the cup on this side, and I'll be over here with the prepackaged communions. Thank you.